Well, again, happy Father's Day to those of you out there uh, who may not have children, but have invested in many, many people. You've been a father to many. Thank you. Happy Father's Day to you as well. Well, on Father's Day and holidays like this, one common thing that always tends to happen is gift giving. We love to give gifts on holidays, whether it's Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas, someone's birthday. We love to give gifts. But have you ever received a well-intended gift that just wasn't actually right for you? Have you ever received one that you, you, you know the phrase, it's the thought that counts, keeps going through your mind to, to try to give you a good poker face? Or have you ever been one, the one who gave a gift that you thought was perfect for someone just to find out it wasn't quite right? Well, I remember the very first Mother's Day gift I ever gave Camille. And unfortunately, she does as well. <laughs> she was pregnant with Asa, and we were about two weeks from our due date. And I thought, you know what? She's a mother-to-be. I will get her an awesome Mother's Day gift. And I thought it through, and I thought, I got it. I know exactly what a mother-to-be will want for Mother's Day. A brand-new knife set. That's exactly what she would want. Well, if you know my wife at all, that is the last thing she would ever want. That's the last thing she would ever think to get for herself. She wanted nothing to do with that. But the good news is, I still love those knives to this day. Those knives are awesome. Why do we give people gifts? Why do we go through all the heartache and process of trying to get the right gift for the person that we care about the most or it's someone's birthday? Or maybe they just had a life achievement like graduating high school. Or maybe... They've done something for you that impacted your life, and you want to get them a gift. Why do we do that? Well, maybe it's just because we want to bless them. We want to say thank you. But ultimately, we want to do it because we appreciate what they've done. When we come to chapter 7 this morning, we see David and Nathan plotting a plan to bless God with an amazing gift. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Uh, Oh, the wind's switching things around on me. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 with me, if you have your Bible. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now imagine this scene for a moment. We just got out of chapter 6. The ark was in Israel. David was established as the king. And we see that because the author now references David, not as just David, but as the king. Three times in these first three verses, he says, the king. The king is resting. This is to affirm his royalty. This is to affirm David as king. And so what is David doing As king, what's he currently doing? He is in his cedar palace resting. He's resting. Maybe he's resting on the rooftop of his palace, looking over all the other roofs. We know that gets him in trouble later. But maybe he's doing that. Maybe he's sitting with Nathan, and they're sitting there talking. All of a sudden, an idea strikes. He goes, you know what? And his mind's thinking, I'm, I'm sitting in this really nice palace. And the ark 
is just in a tent, just with tarps. I'm in this beautiful, glorious palace that God has given to me, and the ark is in a tent. So what does he do? He looks at Nathan and he says, Nathan, bro, I got it. Now, if you didn't know, that's how kings talk to prophets then. He said, bro, I got it. I figured it out. I am going to build a house for the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. That's what we got to do. Nathan looks at him and goes, bro, that's a brilliant idea. If you, if you want to do that, do it. The Lord will love that. That'll be a great gift. Here is David resting. He's in his palace and he remembers God. He thinks of God. And he thinks of a great gift. And this would be a great gift for God. It would show Israel that this is where their Lord resides. It would show the world that this is where God resides in Israel. This seems like a great gift. This would be an excellent gift. But just like my well-intended gift for my wife, it was a practical, noble, well-thought-out gift. The problem is, it didn't have the person fully in mind. David's gift to God is good, but David has a small view of God right now. He's not intentionally having a small view of God. He just needs a reminder of who God is and why this gift may not be the best gift for God right now. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. It says this, but, at the same not, but, the, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Nathan goes away from this conversation with David, probably planning on starting to put up some blueprints for a house for God. He's thinking, we're, we're going to start a building project. Well, God gives Nathan a vision while he's sleeping of what he wants David to know. And what, what is it that God wants David to know? He wants him to know this, that God is not done working. He's not done yet. He's not ready to rest. God starts by taking, by, with a rhetorical question. He says, David, are, are, are you to build a house for me? Why, why would God need a house anyways? It will be ultimately for him to rest, just like David was. Because David thinks the work is done. He thinks he's made it. He thinks he is at the pinnacle of his kingship. And therefore, to thank God, he wants to give God a wonderful, glorious house to rest in. But God makes it clear that David doesn't get to, deter get to determine this. God does. So God wants to show David where he truly lives, which is with his people. He takes them all the way back to Egypt when God delivered them from Pharaoh's hand. Where was God at that time? He was among his people. When Israel was wandering through the desert, where was he? He was with his people. Then he poses this question. What, why do you think I never told the judges or the leaders before you to build me a house? Why? Because I was not done working yet. God will be with his people and rest, be resting in a house once his people are given their true rest. David may have been resting, 
But God wasn't. He wasn't resting because his work was not yet done. God was showing David that there was still work to do. This isn't just unique to David. This is common in all people, and you see it even at a young age. My son Asa loves helping us rake leaves. It's one of his favorite things to do in the fall. We'll get a big pile started in the front yard. He'll come out, he'll jump in them for a little bit, and then we'll start putting them in the, the yard waste. Start putting them in there, big pile, get everything in. He starts jumping in the green yard waste to get it down, get him out, put the lid on it. He puts down his gloves and his rake, and he goes, whew, Dad, that was good. Let's go watch a show. Not knowing that there was four more piles the same size in the backyard. There was still work to be done. He thought that was the work. Now it's time to rest. David was ready to rest. Sorry. David is ready to rest. He thinks the work is done. And he wants God to rest as well. But the work isn't done. God won't rest until it is. This reveals God's character, doesn't it? It reveals God's character and his agenda. And this is what a revelation does. When God reveals himself through his word, it gives us insight into his character and his agenda. God wants to be with his people. God moves with his people. God's house is among his people. And when God is ready to rest, he will build his own house among his people. And who is going to do this? Who's going to build it? Well, it's not going to be David. It's going to be God himself. So we're starting to see a clear contrast between David's plan and God's plan. David is ready to rest. He believes he has arrived and the work is done. God won't rest until the work is done. There is still work to do. David has a small picture of God's plan, and God has an eternal picture of his plan. So what work is left to be done? David, while hearing this from Nathan, has to wonder, well, what does then have to do with now? We're here, the ark is back, the kingdom is united, and we are no longer fighting enemies. What possibly could still be, need to be done that you're not ready for a house? Well, God is about to reveal to David that he has always been working in David's life, not just in Israel's past, but in his past. And he will be working in the near future in, through David and Israel, and, will, and his work will carry on for eternity. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says this, Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus is the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. We'll stop there. So what work is left to be done? God reveals to David that David has not done anything that wasn't a result of God's work in his life. God took him from being a mere shepherd boy to being a king. God defeated all of David's enemies Though through him and his mighty men, it was God's hand who held them back. And not only has God been working in David's life in the past, he will continue to work in David's life in the near future. 
in what is to come and in Israel. God's revealing that it's not time yet for a house. It's not time yet for God to rest. God reveals two things he's going to do for David and for Israel. The two things he's going to do for David is he's going to make David a great name, equal to the kings of the world. His name will be known. And second, he will give David rest from his enemies. That rest is going to come, but not yet. For Israel, God will give Israel a place, a place to worship, a place for rest, and he will give them a peace. Even though it may feel that way now, God's making it clear that there's still work to be done. It's not yet. God is revealing to, to David that this current state of rest and peace is temporary, both for David and for Israel. It won't last. Therefore, building God a house to rest in is not in the cards. David's agenda has been redirected by God's revelation. But are you picking up some familiarity with this, with, with this promise of this near future, what's going to happen? This work that still needs to be done, it should sound a little bit familiar. It should remind you of God's promise to Abraham, a promise of a, of a nation and of a land and of rest and worship, relationship with God. God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham through David. It's going to happen. It's not completed yet. Again, God's plan is in line with God's character, which is revealed in his word. Therefore, God's work isn't done yet. God is not done working. But he doesn't just stop with fulfilling his promise to Abraham through David. No, he's now going to make a promise and a covenant with David that will not just have temporary implications, it'll have eternal implications for all of humanity. This promise that is going to be made to David will directly affect all of us. Look at verses 11 through 16, starting halfway through 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Look at how God introduces this new covenant, this new promise. He's really trying to get David's attention. He's really saying, listen up. I have something to tell you that will carry on for eternity. This is important. God is going to build a house, not David. This house is going to last for eternity. We see that the house David wanted to build would have been temporary and, and premature. Why? Because God still had work to do through him and for Israel. But God had work to do that will last for eternity. That will impact, that will involve David's offspring. That will sit on a throne forever. And God makes it very clear in these last couple of verses, that nothing can stop him from accomplishing this. In these last few verses, there are three things that God makes very clear that cannot stop him from fulfilling his promise to David. 
These three things are common things that tend to stop humans, tend to stop people, but they cannot stop God. The first that thing that cannot stop God is death. Death cannot stop God from fulfilling his promise. Look back at verse 12 with me. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This promise, this, this forever kingdom that God is going to establish will start after David's death. It starts with David, but it will carry on after David dies, starting with Solomon. This does not depend on David's life or his occupancy of the throne. God will put this promise into action after David dies. I wonder how David must have been feeling right there. A promise made to him that even when he dies will be fulfilled? How comforting that must have felt. No matter, his re- no matter how his reign turns out, God will fulfill his promise to him of having his house, his offspring reign forever. So the first thing that God makes very clear that cannot stop him from fulfilling his promise is death. The second thing that cannot stop God from fulfilling his promise to David is sin. Look at verses 13 through 15. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So not only can death not intervene with God's plan of fulfilling his promise to David, but neither can sin. This promise goes through all of David's offspring. And we know that the kingdom, as we read on later, the kingdom and the kings will not all be righteous. Rather, many of them are the complete opposite. But God is making it very clear that their relationship between uh, him and God and him and the kings, David's offspring, will be that of a father to a son. This includes love and faithfulness, grace, mercy, and discipline. And just on a Father's Day note, this God the Father right here is the one worthy of imitating. This example right here he shows that he's faithful to his promise, he's faithful to his people is worthy of imitation and celebrating. But this promise, this kingship, will be different from Saul's. For when Saul rebelled, he took it away from him. He took the throne away from him. But it won't be that way with David's promise. Why? Because God is fulfilling the promise, not David. David is God's chosen king. God warned the people of Israel what it would be like to have Saul as king. But now God shows David what it will be like to have God establish the kingdom. He will cause David's lineage, his offspring, to remain on the throne by his own doing, not David's. And the third and final thing that cannot stop God's plan, that cannot distort God doing what he has promised, is time. Look at verses 16 through 17. In your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
God's plan will not be affected by death, sin, or time. God is building a house that will remain in place with a king on the throne and a place of rest for eternity. His chosen king will sit on the throne forever. And God repeats this emphasis of eternity twice in verse 16. Look at it one more time. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Time cannot stop God from fulfilling his plan. God is building a house, not David. David has never been able to bring anything before God. Nothing he brought to God caused God to make him the anointed king. Actually, the complete opposite. Samuel thought he couldn't fathom David being king when he first saw him. Nothing David caused, nothing David could do would cause his enemies to surrender. It was all God. And there is nothing David can do to bring this promise to fulfillment. It is all dependent upon God. And another way we can know this is by looking through these 12 verses from 4 to 16 and recognizing that God references himself 25 times as the one who either has, is, or will accomplish his promise. It's all dependent upon God. What a great comfort David must have been feeling when he was hearing this. What a great comfort we can have. Because the beauty is, we've seen this promise come to fruition. We have seen and read God's revelation of the Son, who he truly is a father to. In the truest sense, Jesus Christ, his Son, who was born to be the King, that would take on the iniquities of not his own sin, but the sin of man. He would take on the stripes of man, the punishment we deserved to bring us into this eternal house that would bring eternal rest for God's people. And ultimately, Jesus did experience death, but like promised to David, it could not stop the plan. It couldn't because Christ conquered death in his glorious resurrection. This is the king in the line of David who would sit on the throne forever, who will sit on the throne forever. This is the king who will build the eternal house made for God's people. And this is the king who will be established by God forevermore because neither death, sin, nor time can stop him. So I hope we can see how this promise that's made to David, this crucial promise in all of scripture and all of history is fulfilled in Christ and is for our salvation. This is the greatest promise ever given because it is a promise of grace. It is a promise of deliverance. It is a promise that is fully dependent upon God and not his servant David. But ultimately, his servant Christ Jesus is the one who brings this promise to fulfillment. No wonder David wanted to build God a house after all. The work seemed to be done. God is good and deserving of such a gift. But there is still work to be done. And David is beginning to see that clearly. Now it's easy for us to sit here and see that the work isn't done yet because we have a whole lot of pages left after 2 Samuel 7. There's a lot that goes on. And if it did stop right there, we could all say we've read our whole Bible. 
But the truth is there is tons of work that was left to be done. But David, just like any other man, once it seems that we've arrived at our mountaintop moment, everything seems to be good, that it couldn't get any better with God. We want to plant our roots and rest. We want to keep a hold of that moment and not move from it. Because what else would there be to do? This is exactly what Peter did during the transfiguration. This is what Peter thought when Jesus was met by Moses and Elijah. He thought, wow, this is kind of weird, but also amazing. Jesus, let's build some tents and stay right here. It gets no better than this. To Peter, that was the highlight of his ministry. How could they ever leave that moment? But Jesus knew there was still more work to be done. That wasn't the pinnacle. That wasn't it. And so they went down that hill to carry on the work. And we're no different from David and Peter. It might look a little different for us today. No, we're not kings and queens who have, you know, united kingdoms and brought an ark back. And we're not the disciples walking right with Jesus and seeing a transfiguration. No, we're not that. But maybe for us, it's that we're coming near the end of our lives and retirement is starting to really come together. And in our retirement, we're starting to decide, you know, where where, where do we buy a vacation home? Or where do we really start to rest? I mean, the kids are out of the house. They're all married. They've got families going. Maybe they're Christians. This seems like this life has been a success and all to the name of God. Maybe you've served in your church and you're starting to hit that point in your life where you're like, you know what, I just... I'll tithe, but I can't give a lot of time because I'm getting tired. And that's good. That's good because you've served so much. You've went through life. But there is still work to be done for the kingdom. There is still work to be done. There are disciples to be made. Souls, lost souls, the gospel to be proclaimed to. And there are members of the body to be served. It's easy to start feeling settled when you start to hit what you think is the climax of your life. But maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not there yet at all. I'm not even close. I'm in the midst of what seems to be the busiest time of my life. I'm raising kids. I'm trying to make ends meet and barely have time to get dinner on the table. Money is not there. My marriage is struggling. I'm working so hard just to get my family to church and to youth group, let alone add more kind of eternal work to my plate. Well, the beauty is this passage is full of hope. Why? Because God does not stop working based upon your circumstance. God continues to work. And therefore, you can still continue to find peace and rest. Because there will be an eternal house to rest in. But maybe you're thinking, well, I'm neither settled yet, hitting retirement. And I'm neither unsettled where life just seems busy. I'm kind of in the middle. Maybe you're a college student and... You're, everything kind of seems to be kind of cool right now. You're busy, but not crazy busy. Maybe you're a middle-aged family and, and the money's starting to get really good and, and the kids are getting older and, you know, we have our issues, but we handle it okay. The temptation that we face when we're at that stage is that we start to look only towards the rest. All of our efforts, all of our resources go into resting, not working. So that's the question. Are we getting to work? Are we taking up the large picture of God's plan? 
that it's beyond our family, it's beyond our personal rest, it's beyond our career, it's beyond our politics? Or are we thinking like David, that everything's kind of starting to come together at times so I can just begin to rest? Everything personally is starting to shape out. Kids are in good schools. Income is good. Home is good. Jobs are good. Marriage seems good. Church life is good. The temptation we face then is to starting to think we can rest. Well, God hasn't. God is not done yet. God's not done working. We must keep working. But the perfect question to follow up with that is what does this work look like? What does it mean to keep working, to have eternal work? What does that look like? Well, I think Jesus, that true king, makes it very clear. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It looks like no matter what circumstance we are in, we continue to proclaim Christ Jesus. For he is the promised king, which neither death, sin, nor time can disrupt his reign. He is still working. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the saving work of Christ, this King who sits on the throne that you promised. Lord, may we see how we can continue to proclaim him to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.